All right. I am your scripture reader today uh, because I didn't want to inflict Mike with another two chapters of reading. So, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We are reading, for those of you reading along, uh, out of Romans chapter 4, uh, verses 4, uh, chapter 4, and uh, the first, I don't know, about half of chapter 5. If you didn't bring your Bible, you can read along with the, on the screen with us. So Paul says, beginning in chapter 4, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of blessedness, of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham... And his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. Because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, uh, the, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were, which is a great verse. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being truly persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it is credited, credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He is delivered over to the death to death for he was delivered over 
to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for the righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Uh, praise be to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer before I get into this passage of Scripture? Father, we love you, uh, and we thank you for your word, and we pray today that you would uh, appoint your word upon our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say to us, and that you would have your way. We pray it in your name. Amen and amen. Well, welcome to church. It's good to see you this morning. Paul says in this passage of Scripture that we can have peace with God via our justification, which is grounded in grace and accessed through faith. And if all of that sounds very confusing, <laughs> I hope that I can help you make sense of it a little bit today, because there is a beauty in this passage of Scripture, and I also think a kind of simplicity. You know, very often we can overcomplicate the Scriptures. I think some of you have sat right where you're sitting right now and gone, why is Nick overcomplicating this, right, from time to time? And I will say, because that's what I do <laughs> in general. I confuse you. That's my job, and it's your job to figure it out. No, uh, there is a beauty, a, a kind of symmetry to what Paul is saying here, and I believe a kind of simplicity. Even though our theological systems and our Bible preachers and all of, and even the very words on the page can sometimes feel a little, uh, a little overwrought at times, a little bit more complicated than we would like them to be, but I think there's a very simple message in this passage of Scripture, and that message is you can have peace very simply. You can have peace with God and peace within yourselves. And my prayer today, as we continue to look at this passage in depth, is that you would allow yourself to see and access the peace that's made available to us in Jesus Christ this morning, wherever you're at, kind of what we prayed about earlier, but that you would be able to access a little bit more this morning of that peace. That's my prayer. But before we start talking about it, let's refresh exactly where we're going today. So in, uh, we're, we're, I'm going to sum up 
chapter 4 here in a second, but I really want to center our time this morning at the first part of chapter 5. And here's, here's the section of Scripture I really want to zoom in on, where in beginning in verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, excuse me, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, you, you heard that part, but you also heard a large section of scripture that came before that part, which is Romans chapter 4. And before we hop into that particular chap section of Scripture, I want to summarize for us the way that chapter 4 makes sense and kind of flows into chapter 5. In chapter 4, Paul is saying a lot of stuff about Abraham. And what he's saying functionally in that passage of Scripture is that Abraham is a model of faith for his audience. So, if you grew up in Sunday school, he is functionally saying this, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. It's very technical. Just follow me here. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. This is functionally what, see, did, did not get the laugh I wanted, and so. God, it must have been my delivery, because that material was gold. Uh, sorry. Uh, that pretty much sums it up, right? Uh, Abraham is held up in this passage as a model because like, like a Gentile follower of Jesus, he believed God before he received the law. So Paul is writing to an audience of both Jews and Gentiles. They're in one church in Rome. He's trying to help them get along, and he's saying Abraham can be an example for both of us. Both of us can serve Jesus together in the church in Rome because Abraham kind of sums up what it means to be a Gentile who believes God without the law and a Jew who believed God with the law because Abraham, what, uh, though he started off just trusting in God before he had the law, was given the law through this act of circumcision and was faithful to it. And so he was both a faithful Jew and a, represent a representative of the Gentiles. And so Paul is making the argument that Abraham is the head of this family called the church of both Jews and Gentiles can look to Abraham and they can see in him a person that had faith like them and so that they can be unified in the church and see a way that maybe they could live together even though living as a community of faith, both Jew and Gentile uh, together, this new community of Jesus followers was a difficult thing to do. And though their pathways to Jesus looked quite different, Jews through the law and Gentiles through the witness to the gospel and faith, they can still live together in harmony. So this is the, this is the argument that Paul is making in chapter 4. And then after establishing that, he transitions to what is one of the most important verses in all of Paul's letters and definitely one of the most dissected. And he begins to speak about the justification that both Jews and Gentiles now have equal access to because of Jesus. Jews are no longer uh, justified by the law in the same way that they were. And Gentiles now have an access.
access to justification that they didn't have prior to Jesus. Paul says here, because of what the Messiah has done through his death and resurrection, uh, his audience can now have, in verse, um, excuse me, I'm looking, verse 1, can now have peace with their creator. They can now have peace with their creator. And this is a big deal, right? This is a big deal. Now, he, this whole passage hinges on this word peace, the peace that is available to both Jew and Gentile now through faith in Jesus. But this whole passage hinges on this word, justification. Is anybody familiar with this word justification? You can raise your hand. It's helpful for me. Does anyone have no clue how to make sense of this word justification? You don't have to raise your hand. You can just make eye contact with me. The which should be all of you, by the way. Uh, <laughs> um, this word, justification, is a kind of big theological word that pastors talk about a lot, that you read in the Bible a lot, so it's important that we talk about, but it's also one that theologians kind of wrestle with and try to describe uh, very often. If you were to look up the dictionary definition of this word, justification, you would read a theological definition, even if you type this in, definition justification, right? There'll be, a, there'll be a normal definition, and then there'll be a little heading that says theological definition. And this is what the theological definition functionally is. To declare or to make righteous in the sight of God. To declare or to be made righteous in the sight of God. So one who is justified is declared by God to be righteous. A better way of putting that, I think, is in the right right? Not just righteous, but in the right. And, uh, and very often when we hear this word justification, we try to come up with analogies to explain what it means. Because if I just tell you the definition of a word, very rarely do we come to a full understanding of what that word means. But rather, analogies kind of help us get our heads around these types of dense theological words. And one of the analogies that is used, actually the predominant analogy that is used to describe justification or to help people get their arms around what this word justification means, is an analogy that is often derived from the law courts. Have any of you ever heard this? You can put your hand up. This idea of justification as a legal, uh, through a legal framework. So this is how the analogy goes very often. Maybe you've heard this. Justification is like when you're a defendant in a court of law. I'm going to ask for hands one more time. Has anybody ever, no, joking. Has anybody ever been a defendant in the court of law? Yes, multiple times, Nick. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just trying to find out who the felons are, guys. That's all I'm trying to do. Uh, <laughs> really, really good. The, so justification is like you are a defendant in, the, in a court of law. And like you were sitting under the due penalty of some law that you broke, right? And Jesus, in this analogy, is the defense attorney, and God the Father is the judge. And though you are guilty of breaking the law, you are declared righteous in the court of law or justified by the court, not because you are not guilty, not because you didn't do that thing, but because before you ever broke the law, Jesus paid the price for your misdeed. He covers it, in a sense. And so because of Jesus, you are declared to be in the right, even though you are guilty. Does this make sense? Everybody tracking with me a little bit? 
That is the law court analogy that's often used to describe what justification is. And there's some truth to that. It's, it's a helpful idea, and it's, it's, it's one that um, I think is true, but I don't think it captures the totality or the full picture of what this word justification means. Because what I want you to see this morning is that while the idea is helpful, this law court analogy is helpful of what it means to be declared righteous and that you're, you receive a righteousness that you did nothing to earn and that it is all grace and God receives and loves you despite the fact that you are pretty broken and you've broken some laws, right? That, that, that's true. But what I want you to see here is that justification in this passage of Scripture is not put within the context of a law court. It's not a judicial thing that Paul is speaking about here. He's not speaking about it in legal terms. He is speaking about this justification in relational terms, I think. The law court metaphor is fine, but it, it does feel a little cold, doesn't it? It feels a little austere, like we're just, like it's just a kind of transaction of righteousness that God is giving to us. It lacks the warmth and the love and the relational power, I think, of what Paul is trying to communicate when he says that you are justified by faith and you are made righteous by the love of God and that you are redeemed and reconciled back into a beautiful relationship with God. If justification is just boiled down to this, like, kind of climactic scene in a courtroom movie, which those courtroom drama movies are some of my favorites. Um, I'm not going to yell at you like Jack Nicholas right now. I, if it's, but if, if the justification is just boiled down to that, I think we miss a big part of the beauty of what Paul is talking about here. Because the point of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the point of God's grace, the point of God's love was not so that you could simply escape punishment. It was not so simply so that you could receive amnesty, but, that our, uh, but rather that our lives in the cosmos would be put right, would be found in the right, would be made righteous. And this is a different thing than just receiving amnesty or getting off, right? When we are justified, we are not simply only declared innocent. Justification means that something broken, something broken or misshapen has been rectified. Has been rectified. Something that was not right has been set right, remedied, or corrected. If justification was simply escape from punishment, it would not be a means of peace. Because peace in the biblical imagination is not simply the absence of problems. It is the presence of something. Relief is not peace. I think we all know that feeling of having gotten away with something that we shouldn't have gotten away with. And I don't call that feeling peace. Do you? When you were a kid and you know you threw that egg at your neighbor's window or your frisbee definitely hit the bottom window of your neighbor's, right, and it broke, and you got away with it, you know there's no evidence, <laughs> but, but that, that I wouldn't call that feeling peace, would you? Then that's not exactly a one-to-one -one correlation, but you know what I mean. And so to be justified by grace through faith means for Paul that something broken has been mended, has been mended, specifically our relationship with God. Because 
And because of that, because our relationship with God is mended, everything else in our lives are or is as well. You see, to justification in Paul's understanding is this through-going cosmic work that has been begun by God through the person of Jesus to reconcile individual hearts and lives back to God into union, into relationship, into a state of peace, but also through the work of Jesus and through followers of Jesus to expand that work of reconciling right-making love out into the entirety of the cosmos. This is why in the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes on the scene, he says things like, Behold, I'm making all things new. You see, the work of redemption, reconciliation, and justification is not a work of pronouncement only. It is a pronouncement that has effects in our lives. It transforms and changes someone. It rectifies us in a sense and brings us peace. Brings us peace. Peace with God, peace with ourselves, and peace with other people. This is how Todd Hunter describes peace. He says this, peace is deeply personal. It facilitates rest, which results in confidence in the abandonment to God, wherein we cease striving to control outcomes. We can do this when the, when the core outcome of our lives is already determined in Christ. We then have no need to justify ourselves to God or to others. Even when struggle is real, there, is need, there, there need not be unnecessary struggle in me. With genuine trust in the greatness and goodness of God, we may need to resist other things, but we don't, need to, we don't have to make through anger and hatred things come out right. That would be nice, wouldn't it? If the, <laughs> isn't that just the, the weight of that being re, like removed from your shoulders is quite nice, isn't it? I love this vision of peace. You see, for Paul, justification leads to peace. And peace with God results in the settled assurance that things will come out right. Peace with God leads to this settled assurance that things will come out right. Which is a little nuts, isn't it, when you think about it? When in the face of all of the things that we all face every day, every year of our lives, the difficulty, the struggle, the pain, the suffering, that we can have a settled assurance that because we have been justified, because we have been moved into Right, because the relationship, our relationship with God has been rectified and made right, that then we can step out into the world with a settled assurance that things will come out right. This is why Paul can say this next thing that he says beginning in verse 3 of chapter 5, where he says this, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings? I put the question mark there at the end of the way I said that. It's a comma. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. That sounds strange, doesn't it? 
There's no real worldly access to a, to a hope that is derived from suffering, is there? Now, when I read this, I, I'm tempted to believe that this is just Paul doing his best Yoda impression, you know, uh, <laughs> perseverance, suffering, perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. It just sounds like a kind of, um, it just sounds like a kind of slogan, right? Something you tell yourself to try and make yourself feel better. Paul is not doing his best Yoda impression here. This is not what he's doing. Paul believes that there is something in suffering that can lead not to discouragement, but to hope. That in some sense, our suffering, our struggle, our difficulty can reveal in us the settled assurance that things will come out right. You know, there's something that you run into uh, in this life when everything is going really, really good. And that is that you don't think things will ever not go good, right? Has ever, anybody ever been in a really, like, really good phase of life, right? Everything just is like clicking. All the bills are getting paid on time. Like everything is just flowing in the direction it's supposed to flow. And in those moments, in those moments, we can very often kind of grow sleepy, I would say. We can, we can believe that, like, my life is just supposed to go great, and everything is just going to work out fine, and that it's always going to be this way. But again, in those moments, the temptation for us is just to depend on ourselves, to believe that we are the arbiters of our good lives, and that we deserve what's happening to us right now, right? That everything's going great, and I deserve it, because gosh darn it, I'm just, I'm just that type of person, right? But Paul says something different here, doesn't he? And keep in mind, he's writing to early Christians, early Christians who had suffered in unimaginable ways. Now, right before, like about five years, maybe less than that, before the book of Romans was written, the emperor in Rome had kicked all of the Jews out of Rome, which is, which is some interesting background to this book. Uh, so all of the Jews, probably the non-citizen, so non-Roman citizen Jewish people, were kicked out of Rome. He just said, get out of here. And so they were, they were, they were kicked out of Rome for about five years. Imagine if uh, the governor of Iowa just came into Cedar Falls and said, um, you all got to leave. You can come back, I don't know when, but you all just got to go because you're a problem, right? And like 10,000 people in Cedar Falls have to go live with their in-laws in Ohio. I don't know where your in-laws live. And then after a period, you have to leave your business, you have to leave your family, you have to leave your home, and you just get exiled. You just have to go. And then a couple years later, there's a new emperor or there's a new edict, and you get to come back, Right? And many scholars say that the part of the tension that the church in Rome was experiencing is that while the Jewish followers of Jesus were gone, Gentiles began to follow Jesus and began to take control of the church. And then Jewish Christians come back in and this, there's this Jew and Gentile conflict that's occurring because there are all these Jews that are coming back to their businesses and their home, homes after they had been kicked out. So there's suffering involved there, right? Paul's not writing this to people who had not suffered. They didn't even have electricity people Does, was anybody did anybody's power go out like thursday night for an hour and a half it, it, our power went out i was at hansen's trying to get some some ice cream for my kids and the power went out at hansen's 
and I got home and the air conditioning wasn't on and the fridge wasn't working and Ashley had lit candles and I thought to myself, we're gonna die. <laughs> we're just gonna die. There's no hope for us any longer. <laughs> we're gonna die. Um, and, the, the, and by that I meant I might be a little sweatier at night than I wanted to be. But, but it's not true, right? The suffering that I have access to is nothing in comparison to, in, to the suffering that these people had access to. And yet, Paul says, Paul says in this passage, that your suffering can reveal something of a hope of the reality of the world to you, if you allow it. If you allow it to happen. Because suffering can produce perseverance, and perseverance can produce character, and character can produce hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. Because we can learn, we can learn that peace is deeply personal and that it can flow out of a kind of abandonment to God and from the settled assurance that things will turn out right. Now we need to, now we need to qualify that statement, don't we? That things will turn out right. Nick, what do you mean things will turn out right? You think that the stock market is just going to keep going up and when I'm 65 it's all going to be there just like I thought it would. No, I don't mean that. Do you mean that um, everyone in my family is always going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise? No, I don't. Nick, do you mean that my body won't break down, that I won't get cancer, that I won't struggle, that I won't get carpal tunnel, right? No, that's not what I mean. The settled assurance that things will come out right is the settled assurance that in the midst of the suffering that we experience, that God will be with us, one, and that two, despite what it looks like in the moment, we have a future that is sure, an eternal hope, a hope of resurrection, and not just a hope of resurrection, but a hope in a God who has said he is working even amidst the broken pieces of our lives, and we know how broken they can be sometimes to renew and restore all things. It's, it's a hope that is beyond anything that can make much sense to people who don't connect with or understand this promise of what it means to be justified. You see, justification has multiple ramifications, doesn't it? It means that we are made right with God. It means that we are put into a new family of believers. We're, we're back into Abraham's family, this new people of God. And it means that we have a sure and new future that cannot be taken away from us. And all of those elements of justification together come together into our lives to produce an, a hope and a peace that if we cling to cannot be taken from us. And yet, we don't want to deny, do we? That suffering very often does not produce perseverance and character and hope, does it? That very often suffering produces difficulty and doubt and pain, depression. And yet Paul is not denying that these things exist, right? He's not denying that these things aren't good. He is very, in fact, realistic about the brokenness of our world. I think he, he would outline in this passage that Christians are called to a realistic hopefulness. 
It's not that we don't mourn with those who mourn. It's not that we don't weep at the sight of the brokenness of our world. It's not that we don't work in the midst of our broken world to see the kingdom of God expand, both in the individual lives of other people and in the structures and systems of our world. We need to be, have a hopeful or real, a realistic hopefulness. But it does not mean, it does not mean that suffering does not have a purpose in our lives to reveal in us hope and to drive us to this place of dependence on God and peace. You see, in the middle of our suffering, even through the tears and the loss and the pain and the brokenness, there's peace. There's peace. Band, if you could come up, that'd be great. Because we know that God has spoken a word. And the word he has spoken is a word of justification. A right-making word. We have been brought near to God relationally. And we can have hope that he is working to make all things new. Because we have an assurance of the goodness of God because of the seed of the Holy Spirit, Paul will go on to say, that has been planted in our hearts. And that seed, or that ember, if you will, can be fanned into flame, he'll say, other places. And that that purpose and that hope and that significance can grow and grow and grow in our lives to the point that, and I know this sounds crazy, we can have peace even in the deepest suffering of our lives. Have you ever known a follower of Jesus who got cancer? I've known a couple. And in that place of like terminal cancer, Ashley and Mai's youth pastor and his wife both have severe cancer right now. They're young. They've just turned 50. And in that place of having the worst thing possible told to you, right? Like you're terminal. You're toast. They have this through going peace. It's, it's crazy. Because they have hope in a God who has reconciled their own hearts and souls back to relationship with God through Jesus. But they have hope in a God that is working, even in the midst of that brokenness, to renew and restore both their relationship and the entirety of the world. And that though things might not go exactly as they want them to in the midst of this cancer diagnosis, God is working towards a good future for them and for you and for me. I personally have not experienced uh, devastating suffering like some people have. I have been sick in my life before. I've experienced loss. And I can say without hesitation, in the moments, in my moments of deepest suffering is when God has been most present. He's been most present. It's in the petty sufferings of my life <laughs> when I don't turn to God and I'm like, where are you? This traffic is horrible. All right? I really wanted to sell that car for $500 more, God. Where are you? It's the petty stuff, right? But I think what deep suffering does is it drives us drives us and drives us back to the core, right back to the center. And it allows us a space to depend on and access the peace 
reconciled because we've been made right. And because the seed of the Holy Spirit planted in our hearts bears witness to the reality of a God who is making all things new. And that's a good word, isn't it? And so this morning, I know for a fact that we need peace. Many of us need peace, don't we? We need to know that we know that we know that there's a God in the center of it all who's making all things new. And, if, and we need a little bit more, and we need to access a little bit more of that peace in our lives. And so would you stand with me this morning? And just in an attitude of prayer, if you're in this place today, and you would say, Nick, I, I don't know what it means to be at peace with God. Follow Jesus with my life. I, I've never been reconciled to the Father by Jesus. I've never placed my faith in Jesus, been made, and been declared righteous by the justification of the work of Christ. Today, that's your step, and it's a very simple one. You're, you're, you will simply, in a moment, just pray this simple prayer. It says, Jesus,
God, we give you our hearts right now. In the name of Jesus, would you meet us? In the midst of our suffering this morning, would you meet us? In the midst of our lack of peace, would you give us peace? And would we know that because you were raised from the dead, there is no power in our lives which can control or consume us. That the greatest power the world has ever known has been made available to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus as we place our faith in that reality and are made new by it. And so I pray over my friends this morning, God, in the power of the resurrection, would you make my friends new in their minds and in their hearts? Would you give them a peace that passes all understanding in the midst of difficulty and pain? And would you give them the assurance that you are working all things together for good? We stand on that promise this morning, and we pray it all in the Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Thanks for being at church today. Would you carry that promise as you go this week? Would you go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Amen.